0: This series will shine a light on the shifting dynamics of governmental entities and the ensuing changes in economic or political policies, laws, and regulations that can have a critical impact on the health and future of your business.
1: Thank you very much for joining us. I'm Dan Sennett of the National Security Practice Group here at Holland and Knight, and this is Eyes on Washington podcast. This is the final podcast in our series on the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA. In this podcast, we'll talk a bit about what's on the horizon in national security and what we can expect DOD and Congress to focus on in the coming year. I can't think of anyone better to talk about this with than Jason Kleitenik, who's the head of national security, defense, and intelligence team here at Holland and Knight. Jason, it's a pleasure to have you here. You have a really incredible background in intelligence and national security. Could you
0: tell us a bit about your background and your practice here at the firm? Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Um, one, thanks for having me. And uh, one of the highlights of this for me is, Dan, you and I are doing this in person. We're like, we're actually like real human beings. We're, we're sitting in a room where we're staring into a speaker and we, um, I think we're socially distant. <laughs> That's I right. think we're socially distant. Um Yeah. My, as, as you said, you and I obviously are colleagues here at Holland tonight in the DC office. You and I are both members of the firm's Uh, national security defense and intelligence team. Here at Holland and Knight, we represent organizations, companies, individuals, and a wide variety of national security related matters. It spans everything from uh, government contractors who support the warfighter and intelligence community agencies uh, with a variety of services and products. We also help companies with compliance related issues that might uniquely arise in the context of national security issues. So think things like insider threat, um, theft of trade secrets, things of that nature. And we also have, as as you might imagine, a a really robust uh, M and A practice here at the firm that specializes in uh, assisting companies that are buying or selling. Uh, within within the national security sphere, so these are uh, companies meant all around the country, but many of which happen to be in the D.C. area, uh, and those are companies that uh, much of their mission is to again support the government government customers in both the DOD and IC space.
1: Great. Let's go ahead and get into it a little bit about um, what's on the horizon. We think in in national security now. Foreign influences of u.S. domestic affairs has been around for years, obviously probably since the inception of our nation. How do you think it has evolved and changed
0: over the course of the last few years? Yeah, a, a few things. One, you know, we, we have uh, technology, right? And, and technology, technology for good, right There is no greater power, there is no greater. Weapon, it's something that all Americans will just focus on our country for now. We, it's part of our everyday life. We all carry a phone wherever we go. We, you know, a lot of us have you know our laptops wherever we are. We're glued to a TV, uh, computer, uh, such as it is. So technology, technology is good, right? So you can quote me as saying that technology is good. Now there are other aspects about our, our country that are also wonderful. And we have this thing called the first amendment. Americans, we are free to express ourselves. We believe in the marketplace uh, of ideas, and as long as you don't uh, do something to cause harm to others in this country, you can pretty much do uh, whatever you want, whenever you want. And that's why we are the great country that we are. Now, our adversaries also recognize this. When I was before I, I rejoined the night, I was the general counsel to the office of the director of national intelligence, and a lot of what we did, we Coordinated closely with the 17 agencies that make up the U.S. intelligence community, and so the myriad of issues cycle through the intelligence community, but one particular issue that was front and center for a lot of my tenure there was uh, countering uh, malign foreign influence, um, interference with uh, elections, election security issues, and... You know, one of my, my one of my takeaways from working on those types of issues is just how from the government's perspective, just how difficult and challenging they are. And they're challenging for a variety of reasons. And one of the reasons why they're challenging is, you know, here here in America, in the United States, we don't do things like uh, have crackdowns on social media. You know, we don't the government doesn't monitor. We don't monitor social media. We don't do things that authoritarian regimes do. Rather, we think a better system is to let people express their views um, however and whenever they want to, even if those views are wrong. Well, our adversaries recognize this, and they've become pretty adept at putting out false information, disinformation, misinformation that has several different types of nefarious intent. One of the types of nefarious intent is to undermine our political system to put out false information about various political candidates, maybe candidates who they think would, if they were to hold office, it would not be in in their foreign nation, uh, best interest. Uh, Another thing they do is anything essentially to kind of uh, create chaos, undermine who we are as Americans. So some of the things that uh, people see on social media or things that purportedly are news that people read about regarding public health, and COVID, and vaccines, and masks, and side effects. Um, you know A lot of that is done by groups, again, looking to undermine our, our national security interests, our U.S. interests. And then the third sort of catch-all category, I would say, is our, our adversaries, again, very adept at putting anything out there, and it's in their interests, uh, anything out there that tears apart our social fabric. As a country, and so when you think back to some of our recent social justice issues that we've gone through at, as a nation, you know our adversaries are, are watching that, and they themselves are putting out information that they think will, rather than bring us together as Americans, uh, try and divide us. And so that that's another sort of category of misinformation. All of these things are, are again, they're, they're difficult to counter. It, it's not always easy to attribute. To who these actors are you know nation state actors um terrorist organizations rogue actors the you know 14 year old kid and sitting at his bedside computer and the shadows of burned out smokestacks somewhere in some you know gosh forsaken place launching cyber attacks so those those types of things are really hard to really hard to counter and again from my perspective and, and from, certainly from our government's perspective, what, what makes them so important is that they, they truly do seek to undermine who we are as a country. You know, something so basic as having people question the credibility of an election. You know, that, that's a, that, that's a really significant, uh, and disconcerting, you know, moment event, and whether it's a federal election, a local state election, but when people seek to undermine americans confidence in our own democratic system and our own ideals that is that's a powerful thing so this year in
1: particular it being an election year being midterms very important elections coming up if you're in that space if you're running uh, either a social media website or you're just in in cyberspace you have a presence there what kind of things should folks be looking out for yeah. at, in the run-up to this election yeah,
0: I think a, a, a few things. So one of the things that makes this so difficult about how do you counter these types of actions, and there certainly are things that you can do to, to counter them, but you know, how how if someone, let's say, a foreign adversary inserts into a an election a piece of information that is false, it's fraudulent in in all respects. How do you counter that without making it an issue in and of itself in the election? And so, you know, I know that the government does what they would... They do a lot of briefings. They do a lot of briefings to members of Congress on a variety of issues in in their oversight capacity, but they also brief uh, people who are running for office at various levels. If there are are instances, evidence that suggests those people are being targeted, right, by by, uh, what I'll just refer to as maligned actors. And one of the challenges with that is, you know, you you've briefed one one party, but then do you brief the other party? You know, the person who, who they are running against. And in doing so, do you run the risk of one of those people saying, "Aha, this, you know, I I am so feared by this foreign nation that they're, you know, putting information out there about me uh, to make it look as if you know fill in the blank." And so it's just really hard. To kind of manage these issues without, again, making them issues themselves in in the election. I think to answer your question, I I think you know people, a couple things. What can they look for? First of all, just sort of your traditional red flags. You know, things that maybe stand out if they're if they're seeing things that uh, it's, gee gosh, this doesn't look like this was written by someone in, in Topeka, Kansas, because you know the syntax is off, off or the verbiage. You know, things that maybe we've all seen. That that's a red flag. But I think the best way to to keep People, I think the best way to counter these types of threats is to make sure that the American populace understands what I think at a, I don't know, intellectual level everyone understands, but but maybe more at a visceral level, understand that you know you you can't think of the old that you can't believe everything you read. Right. And I, I think about, you know, friends, family, people that come to me and, and say they've read so-and-so on the internet and they, I don't know why they're consulting with me. I don't know if these things are true or not, but I, I always tell them, look, like, I, I don't know if that's true. I hadn't heard that. I don't believe everything that I read on the internet, but I, I think people, it's important to, I think, keep things in perspective when they see things, when they read things and ask themselves, does this you know, does this seem reasonable? One of the things that I think, again, maybe getting back to COVID, and and I think I think this is a salient point. Hopefully, it's relevant. You know, I I was recently speaking with someone at the FBI, and uh, we were talking about you know various downsides of, of the pandemic and, and people not showing up to work and just operationally you know, some certain challenges. And, and you and I are at a law firm, Dan. We like coming into the office and. Uh, a lot of our colleagues are here, but some of them are not, and we miss them. But um, but one of the other things that the Bureau is seeing is that people who, because of the pandemic and they're not going into work, a lot of folks are sitting in front of their computer all day, every day, right? And they're sitting at their computer, and they're reading things on social media and, and other means. And Maybe in years past, before the pandemic, if they were in an office or, or a manufacturing plant, they'd be standing around the water cooler and saying, "Hey, I just read this following article. It seems kind of crazy." And then they would bounce ideas off each other, and someone would say, "Well, I don't, I don't know. That doesn't sound right." You know, Dan, I think, you know, I, that I actually, have you looked at this? This is, but, but what's happened is people are now they're sitting at home. And they're sitting in front of their computers and the way that getting back to technology, the way that artificial intelligence works is the more, uh, information that you seek that has a particular view, the more information you're going to get that is consistent with that view that furthers that view, even if that information is wrong. And so, you know, again, maybe tying, tying the uh, pandemic into it, but, but that, that's for to me an example of misinformation. In a, uh, just a really dangerous environment where a lot of, a lot of folks are isolated. They're not, they're not socializing and maybe in the ways that they normally would. And it becomes, and I'm just going to use this term broadly, but it becomes sort of a a breeding ground for people to become radicalized in their views. And, and that's a dangerous thing. And our adversaries recognize that also. That's an interesting byproduct of this of the COVID pandemic, and, and no
1: doubt that our adversaries have figured that out and are exploiting that to some extent. Uh, I, and speaking of disinformation campaigns, let's talk about recently, um, Russia has invaded Ukraine. There are obviously a lot of really, really bad consequences as a result of that. But can you talk through what we can expect to see some of the second, third order effects regarding cyber attacks, other things that we can expect to see in our as we respond to this um, aggression by Russia?
0: Yeah. No, um, you know, for me, what, what's so interesting, and I, I mentioned this to you, I, I had lunch with a, a good friend of mine yesterday who, I had previously served with in government, and, and he pointed out to me, so this is not my original thought, but, but he pointed out to me what, what's so um, horrific uh, and interesting about what is currently happening in Ukraine is, you know, in, in the past, we have seen things like World War II, a conventional land war. You've got tanks, missiles, guns, troops on the ground. We, we've seen that. We know what that is. We've also seen, fast forward, we've also seen what, you know, a, a, a cyber attack looks like one one country um seeking to take out a uh, another country's critical infrastructure and that's happened in uh, baltic republics and elsewhere perpetrated by the russians and you know so we, we know what that is and and this with what's happened now i think what we're going to see if it's not already happening is you're going to see a conventional land war an invasion one country invading another country crossing its borders and then you're going to have a cyber attacks, cyber intrusions laid over that and with it. And it's all going to be happening at the same time. And so what does that mean? It, it means you're going to be seeing, I think, things like denial of, of service attacks. So I don't know. I imagine they may try and turn the lights out. They're going to hit the power grid. You know, maybe they'll hit other, the energy sector, other key, things that keep a, a country like Ukraine going. I mean if you think about our own country, you know, our, our own financial systems, the New York Stock Exchange, those are all incredibly vulnerable things that, you know, those those are the types of things that, that I worry about. So you're gonna have war, you know, you're gonna have air, right, sea, land, and then and then cyberspace and you know, in the ether and you're gonna see things happening and you're gonna see other um and Russia hasn't been quiet about this because you know, they, they threatened attacking anyone that comes to the defense of Ukraine, whatever that looks like. And so, you know, you could see, I expect to see our own government is cautioned about attacks over here. And so cyber attacks by the, the Russians over here and elsewhere, and I'm sure the Brits and others are facing the same types of threats and we will deal with them as, as we face them. Uh, and then the other thing we talked about that that's interesting is, you know, a lot of these systems, Military systems, communication systems are reliant on satellites, right? So we've got, and and so you're going to see, you know, satellite against. You may see satellite against satellite, you know, something out of like a a 1960s sci-fi movie, where if you think about military systems, a lot of them again rely on on satellite infrastructure architecture, and if you want to blind and deafen an army, a military, one thing you could do would be to you know, take out some of the satellites that they rely upon to, to do what they need to do. And so I just think, you know, we start off, Dan, by having such a great day, right? And we're going to such dark places. We're going to such dark places. I am an, you know me. I am an optimist. My glass is always half full, but, but something like this that we're, we're watching in, uh, in Ukraine unfold is this tragedy. And it's only, it's only going to get worse, obviously, before it gets better. You're going to see things like a humanitarian crisis on top of everything else. And I think it's interesting, there are already discussions and and many
1: that emerged from uh, Munich Security Conference about what Congress's response is going to be to this. And there's already a coalition, bipartisan coalition of senators, who are looking at an emergency supplemental in order to address this. Um, So I think we'll see that legislation, but certainly in the FY23 NDAA, Russia is going to be front of mind, and how do we address that? And... Oh, by the way, we still have, um, great power competition, strategic competition. I believe that DOD is now calling it with China, with China as well. Absolutely. Uh, now it's a major theme in FY22's NEAA. So I think we'll probably continue to see that. Um, and, and so I want to, um, go back to something a little bit lighter, although not, quite, um, which is security clearances. As you know, speaking of the NDAA, there have been several attempts over the years to try and reform the security clearance process and kind of remedy this backlog we're seeing and a persistent backlog. And you've seen a shift back uh, the function from OMB to DOD now uh, so, in the last couple of years, what have you seen? Have you seen any improvements in that space, or what do you think is on the horizon as far as security clearances are
0: concerned? First of all, my my view of um, I guess security clearances, the security clearance process. I, I you know, my, so maybe I have some perspective. You know, I, I I would not hold out myself to be an expert in, in security clearance issues, but but I've been I've been part of it from kind of a three sixty. Perspective and, and by that, I mean, I like you. I've been in government. I've been subjected to and voluntarily participated in the security clearance process. And, and I know I feel like I know what that's all about. And it's, it's a uh, completely reasonable, rational, thoughtful process. I respect the women and men who are charged with implementing it. And it's incredibly important, right? Because what, what this really is all about when you're talking about security clearance is it's. it's it's who should be trusted with um, our most valued information. And and I've said this repeatedly, but, you know, whenever in my career I've had access to classified information and I've had jobs where i had a lot of access, you know, I, I was always mindful of all the uh, things that our brave uh, women and men out in the field and elsewhere did to get that information that I was reading. And, and so once that, that information is, is bestowed upon you and you have the privilege, right, to review it, you know, that, that is sacred. And so I, I think that the vetting process, it needs to be thorough. I'm, I'm not someone who just sort of raises his hand and complains that it takes too long because the fact of the matter is I, I know at times it takes a long time, but maybe it should take a long time. Now, having said all that, I've also been on the other side where I've tried to recruit people. come work for me and I I waited for the clearance process to come through and I may have been trying to bring someone over from another IC agency they had all the clearances they would need to work with me they had a uh, full scope polygraph they were ready to go but we didn't have reciprocity. So that person maybe had to go through the same process all over again to come work with me and my agency. Again, I, I defer to others on those types of things. My understanding is that the reciprocity now is much better than it used to be. It's it's much easier to get people to move from one government agency, let's just say one IC element to another IC element, IC agency than it used to be. And I also think that you know the, the pipeline. Um, I don't want to use the word backlog. I'll just say the pipeline has has been greatly diminished, and uh, and and that that was also a I would just say a heavy lift. Uh, a lot of resources went into that. So I I think it's it certainly has improved, and it's just improved I think in the last three to five years. But I also know now that I'm on this side of things, and in the private sector we have a lot of government contractor clients. And, and their employees are reliant right. or dependent upon the, the security clearances, their lifeblood, because they can't perform the work unless their folks are cleared. And for them, as, as you know, and, and there's nothing to be ashamed of, but time is money, right? So if you can't get people on the contract, and it's also, for me, security clearance reform is all one of those maybe few wonderful issues where everyone is in violent agreement, mm-hmm. right? Congress wants Wants it to happen. Uh, the government contracting community wants to get their people cleared. The government agencies want to get their people cleared as quickly as possible. One, so they can onboard uh, qualified and suitable government employees. But they also, the government contractor, you know, they have they rely on these government contractors to perform really important services, provide really important products. And if they can't get those folks cleared, then there's a gap. And so everyone agrees that we can make great strides in security clearance and, and how we do it and, and the timeliness, I, it, it is one of those, again, rare, rare issues, rare topics where I think everyone, it truly is one of common interest, common concern. Yeah, and I think one of the related issues is that there is common
1: interest and in, um, universal agreement, and we saw this in the FY22, and I assume it's gonna be an issue for years to come, is um, security of US technology. And we have seen an incredible amount of intellectual property theft by China and others. And you alluded to, you know, there's a lot of work that um, we rely on the private industry and the Department of Defense relies on private industry in order to develop the sensitive technology and then then, uh, deliver the end product. So any thoughts on how that is going to evolve over the course of the next year or so? and
0: And that security of u s technology will manifest itself yeah, I think um, and again, this is something we we were talking about earlier, just because it's so front and center to, um, when you look at something like what's happening in ukraine and so that that's when you start to think about uh, you know in the United States we develop. All these tremendous and wonderful technologies and and we're really careful as to what happens to that that technology the information that supports that technology making sure it doesn't leave our borders in any way right without it being scrutinized that's where things like export controls come in we have a really in the united states fortunately a really robust regime and and it should be robust to make sure that the wrong technology doesn't end up in the wrong hands Right. And so, you know, earlier we were talking about things like satellites and critical infrastructure and cyber. And so you you could imagine weapon systems So these things that we develop and give us an advantage against our adversary. You know, for me, the the simplest uh, example, because it's just something that's always resonant, you know, night vision goggles. Right. Night vision goggles. Well, that, you know, Dan, you're you're an army. Better, and you understand the benefit of, of night vision goggles and being able to see in the dark when your enemy cannot, right? So that, that's a huge, huge advantage. And so you get things like night vision goggle technology, and all of a sudden you see now all of a sudden your adversary can see every bit as well as you can, um, all because the technology got loose. So yeah, I, I think that, I think we will see particularly as technology continues to be so tied to defense, national security—you know—we're kind of past the days of the homing pigeon and the cavalry, <laughs> you know. And it's just—and and it's just—it's baked into everything. It's just baked into everything. And uh, military communication systems, weapon systems, GPS—I mean, it, it's the whole thing. And so, I, I expect you'll see our, our government continue to be really energetic in the way it approaches it. Really energetic in the way and make sure that as best it can our universities, you know, research institutions, that their developments, their technologies are protected in the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, you know, we're we're here to talk about national security, but it it just transcends every industry, chemical industry, pharmaceutical industry. And because these are all things that are you know, our adversaries would love to get their hands on. And normally, you know, I'm pretty Polyannish and I would say to make the world a better place, but I'm not, I'm not so sure if that's true.
1: Well, it, you know, this has been a great discussion. Any last point you'd like to leave us with on the landscape
0: um, in, in national security in the coming year? Yeah. You know, I, I just think that the, you know, the world, <laughs> uh, it, maybe it's because it's cloudy out Dan. you know, and, but, but the world continues to be a dangerous place right but i i think that good always right good always overcomes evil we know that to be true or you and i would not be sitting in this room right now and i i think that governments philosophically aligned culturally aligned same value systems you know frequently you know will will join together i i keep thinking about just because it's so fresh on my mind you know what russia has moved into ukraine and i I, I don't see how that really was in anyone's best interest, but but it's a reminder that it is a dangerous world, and that's where I'm heading with this. It's a dangerous world. We haven't even talked about things like terrorism, you know, and, and that's not going away. But I think that the sector, the services, the women, the men, both in government, the companies that support the warfighter, the intelligence officers, the community at large, those people work You know, I mean, they do remarkable things, right? They do remarkable things all day, every day without the limelight. And, uh, and, and those are the people who you and I have both had the privilege to serve with, serve among. And those are the people that I have the most confidence in. And those are the people who ultimately, when we're ever in a jam, they're the ones who are going to get us out of it. And so future's bright, feeling really good about things. And uh, But the world, the world is just going to remain a dangerous place. That's just the, the nature of things. Well, I couldn't uh, imagine a better way to
1: end this uh, NDAA series than this conversation. And, and really great to get your insights. And, and thanks, Jason, for being here. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Eyes on Washington podcast brought to you by holland and knight's public policy and regulation group for more information on our public policy and regulation group please visit hklaw.com ppr